The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only. The topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. For the more that views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect the official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly Capture Like More Hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know the rules. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. On tonight's show, I will be talking to two fantastic guests about how we can treat acute pain in the patient with opioid use disorder who's admitted to the hospital. Uh, I, of course, am Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. Unfortunately, tonight, without my fantastic co-host, Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. So I will remind you that we are the internal medicine podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge on tonight's show. I have a great conversation with Drs. Carolyn Chan and Dr. Sean Cohen, who are going to tell us all about how to handle this very common and very challenging problem in the hospital, patients who are both either in opioid withdrawal or at risk for opioid withdrawal and also having an acute painful condition. So they're going to tell us how to treat both those things. And it's a really fantastic conversation. Not going to get into the full bios because uh, Sean and Carolyn are going to tell you about themselves. A reminder that this and most episodes will be available for free CME credit for all health professionals through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. Carolyn, Sean, we've been talking for a while here, but uh, let's get the audience in on this and please tell them, uh, Carolyn, let's start with you. Give the audience like a one-liner, let them know what you do for your job and, and tell them maybe a hobby or interest as well. I am a 33-year-old internist and addiction medicine doctor and currently am a medical education fellow. And I love eating ice cream and strongly believe that you should be able to eat it in all seasons. <laughs> and um, in my other free time, I like to do improv comedy and I co-host the Curbsiders Addiction Medicine Series with one of my colleagues here today. Which is not an improv comedy series for... <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is correct. <laughs> yeah. Right, yes. We are, and we are excited to have both of you on. It's been a great addiction medicine series. Hopefully more to come from that. And this is, you know, a teaser for the audience in between seasons. I think this will be very helpful to a lot of people listening. So also with us is Dr. Sean Cohen. Sean, can you give the audience a one-liner and maybe a hobby or interest? Yeah. I always have to like recalculate my age every time I do it nowadays, which I <laughs> assume means once you get to your 30s, maybe start doing that. But I think I'm also a 33-year-old. Uh, I am an aspiring dad joker and I, much like Carolyn, a formerly burnt out hospitalist who really like refound my love for medicine in kind of helping people with substance use disorders in the hospital and going back to addiction med fellowship. Um I also go to Carolyn for all of my ice cream advice and kind of ride her <laughs> coattails like getting this, doing this podcast with her. So my big hobby now is is probably, I mean, most of my time is just spent taking care of my not so terrible two-year-old. But. All right. And, and part of the genesis for this podcast, as I was telling you guys before, was that just as I spend some of my time as a hospitalist, I talk to other hospitalists. I know that it's just it's a tough thing. You have patients admitted to the hospital. They're in acute pain, but they also have substance like opioid use disorder. And you're trying to manage both those things at the same time. So we're going to go through some cases that give us a couple common scenarios. This episode is brought to you by ExpressVPN. 
And let me tell you, when you use the bathroom, you always close the door behind you, right? That's because you don't want people to look in on you. So why do you do that when you're online? Using the internet without ExpressVPN is like going to the bathroom and not closing the door because ExpressVPN, it creates a secure encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet because what you do on there is no one else's business. I know I use ExpressVPN on all my devices because, first of all, I have to work in a lot of public places, coffee shops, libraries. I got to get out of the house. I got too many kids at home. So I need a place where I can work and focus and I want my information and my privacy to be safe. ExpressVPN is easy to use. You just fire up the app, click one button, and bam, you're protected. So if you're like me and you believe that your online activity is your business, then secure yourself by visiting expressvpn.com slash curb today. Use the exclusive link expressvpn.com slash curb and you can get an extra three months free. That's expressvpn.com slash curb. This episode is brought to you by Southern California Permanente Medical Group, or SCPMG. They are a physician-led partnership organization that offers a fulfilling practice where you're going to benefit from backup support, no overnight call, flexible scheduling, and work-life balance. If you join them, you're going to enjoy a practice free from the hassles of running an office, developing a patient base, prior authorizations, and insurance billing. Plus, they have potential teaching opportunities and blended outpatient-inpatient roles may also be available. This is a unique place because it's physician-led, it's patient-centered, technology-enabled, they have generous benefits, and they have dozens of locations throughout Southern California where you're going to enjoy that beautiful Mediterranean climate. I mean, I'm thinking about moving. Come on. So if you want to make a difference in a community that appreciates your passion and expertise, then join SCPMG as an outpatient internal medicine physician. Learn more or apply at scpmgphysiciancareers.com or call 866-449-1684. That's scpmgphysiciancareers.com or call 866-449-1684. Since Paul's not here, I will I will read the first case here. So this first case, JJ, a 32-year-old male, he has severe opioid use disorder. He's already on buprenorphine naloxone, eight milligrams twice a day, smokes a pack a day of cigarettes, uh, occasional alcohol. He's had endocarditis in the past and has been admitted with sepsis from a thoracic epidural abscess. He has spine tenderness, saying his pain is like seven out of 10, Um, Of course, we start him on aggressive nicotine replacement, which I find is always essential. And, uh, but we think he's going to need surgery. So we need, we need acute pain control. Now the old teaching, and I know we've covered this a little bit on the show, but maybe people haven't heard those old ones. The old teaching was stop buprenorphine because you're not going to be able to give full agonist opioids like, like morphine, like hydromorphone. Carolyn, what's the current thinking on this now? Currently, we think that we should continue it throughout the perioperative, postoperative period for our patients because we know from more clinical experience now that we can indeed achieve adequate analgesia by maintaining folks on their MOUD and also treating their acute pain with full agonists on top. Yeah. And I gave an example. So full agonists, the hydromorphone morphine, 
the fentanyl, of course, is a, we now now fentanyl we're not thinking of as a pharmaceutical, but it is. Uh, and Sean, what's the? Can you remind people of the pharmacology? Like, why do they think buprenorphine isn't going to allow people to get full agonist effects or adequate pain control if they have buprenorphine in their system? Yeah, so I mean, bup is a uh, buprenorphine is a partial agonist at the opioid receptor, but it's also super high affinity, and so I kind of describe it as like it like clamps onto that opioid receptor and binds tighter. So there's this thought that if all of your opioid receptors are filled with buprenorphine, that no other opioids can get on and you can't get pain control. But the reality is, I mean nothing is is static, right? The opioid receptors are changing all the time and what's on them is changing. And so you can still give full agonists and get pain control too. I think the other thing to really keep in mind is that if you're stopping someone's buprenorphine, like getting people back onto buprenorphine is another step in the process. And now that we know that the recommendation is to keep people on bup throughout, there have been like these bigger studies that show that that's not the case for, I think like greater than 60% of people, the bup is stopped. And and a big chunk of them don't get back onto bup. I think there was this study out of the Journal of General Internal Medicine where like over 10% never got back onto bup and then 5% died from overdose within um, the follow-up period. So this is like a critical thing that we need to change our practice on. People should stay on buprenorphine. You can use full agonists like higher affinity stuff, like hydromorphone and fentanyl for pain and all the other stuff that we always use for pain too, Tylenol, NSAIDs, try to get anesthesia involved for nerve blocks. So JJ is on eight milligrams twice a day, and we want to keep him on the buprenorphine. Carolyn, do you like to split it up? Uh, do you find, I know buprenorphine provides like six to eight hours of analgesic effect. Do you split it up? And if so, what's something typical you do for a patient like JJ? Yeah, that's a great question. The first thing I do is I ask the patient and I talk to them about this. Uh, if a patient feels strongly that they don't want to change their medication or home dose at all, I don't feel strongly that we have to split it. I often like to try it and I recommend it as an option to patients to say, hey, you know, we may get improved control of your pain by splitting. So generally what I do, my approach is to sort of start with their original home dose. Okay. So let's say he's on 16 milligrams total daily dose. So I could split this a couple of ways. I would offer him possibly doing four milligrams every six hours or eight milligrams, four milligrams and four milligrams for TID dosing as a starting point. And I've seen some people go up above that. Uh, so I, but that to me that I was like, afraid to do that because if I go up on their dose, then what does that mean for their outpatient? Are they going to have to be discharged on that? That's where my head would be going if I'm thinking about this. Uh, I'd, I'd love to like hear to, what you what you like, how you approach that. I like to think of it in terms of two buckets. One, I want to make sure I'm treating their opioid use disorder. And then the other bucket too is treating their pain. So if somebody's opioid use disorder was not well controlled, they were still having cravings, having intermittent use, I'm going to automatically offer to increase that dose of buprenorphine for them because I already was probably not treating their opioid use disorder adequately. Um, and then generally, I think about treating the pain, the acute pain sort of, again, in the second bucket. And I, I like to think a lot about kind of the pain generator, right? I do think that has a role. Uh, if somebody is having, you know, CT surgery for endocarditis, that's a very different type of pain than if somebody has 
cellulitis. And we think it's going to really improve over the next couple of days with adequate antibiotic treatment. So if it's more on the mild side, in my expert opinion, um, I will offer a higher dose for acute pain. I will also offer a higher dose to treat undertreated opioid use disorder. And if a patient I think is going to have um, a more moderate to severe pain generator, then I, I'm really thinking, you know, maybe I'll start by just keeping the buprenorphine the same and start keep by start by keep keeping the buprenorphine the same and then adding the full agonist on top. Sean, what about you? Anything different about your approach to that? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I tra trained in the same place that Carolyn did. So I think our approaches are often similar, but I, I think that's a good, I, I don't know that I had a formalized framework, but that is what I do. I think like, I don't worry about changing people's buprenorphine dose and increasing that. But I think I'm also fortunate in that I work at a place where there's very easy access to buprenorphine and, and pretty seamless communication with a lot of the buprenorphine prescribers in the area where I can just say, I increase their dose to 24 and someone will take over. And I know that's not the case everywhere. So I think if people are I think if someone was nervous about someone leaving on a higher dose of buprenorphine, you can always call their prescriber too, although that's an extra step in another very busy hospitalist day, I'm sure. Um, but I think I do the same thing as Carolyn is uh, if, if the pain is kind of mild or moderate, try increasing the dose. If that doesn't work, maybe add an opioid. If I think the pain is going to be a severe, just add an opioid right away. And again, in addition to adding all the other things for pain that we should be doing too. So if we, let's say for instance, we, we put, uh, we put JJ on four milligrams four times a day. We haven't changed the home dose. And um, and for whatever reason, we decide instead of going up to 24 milligrams or eight milligrams three times a day of the buprenorphine, we decide we want to give some something short acting for pain on top of it. Is it is there any preference like IV, oral? Should all of it work just the same? Like, can we give oxycodone just as well as we can give IV hydrocodone or hydromorphone rather? Sean, what do you I, think? I, I, yeah, and I don't know if there's like firm data supporting this, but the thought is that like higher affinity. So bup is really high affinity at the opioid receptor. So if you want to use an opioid that competes with it at the opioid receptor to get good pain control. So the thought is the two opioids that we can prescribe that have the highest affinity are hydromorphone, which you can generally use in any kind of clinical area in the hospital, mm -hmm. and then fentanyl, usually IV, which at least the hospitals I worked at is usually limited to the ED and the ICU or the step-down unit. And so I usually reach for hydromorphone predominantly. I don't think there's a big difference, at least in my knowledge, between using oral and using IV. I always opt for oral when people can take oral because it's more because it just lasts longer. And people, if you're using IV, you have to dose like every two hours and people just go on these roller coaster rides of having their pain controlled and then not controlled and pain. So I think the oral, if, as long as you dose it in the appropriate kind of intervals works better in general. Yeah. So those intervals every two to four hours, something like that. Um, hopefully with the orals, they get every three to four hours, at least three to four hours of pain control. Yeah. Yes. And I will say it's okay to do both. You know, we uh, have had patients, right, with complex wound dressings who need a dose of IV medications to really help them in those situations. So I will definitely yeah. still use a combination, reach for oral first, but I will still use IV, you know, as needed if there's severe breakthrough pain. Okay. Yeah. And I think I use IV too when I'm like first meeting a patient, they're first coming out the OR and like I get them on an oral regimen, but I don't know what dose is going to work for them. Right. And so I'll start them on some orals, but have the IV as backup too. So I can start ramping up what to get the oral dose that they eventually need. 
Okay, great. So we're, we're addressing their opioid cravings with the buprenorphine. That also is doing a little work for the pain if we uh, give it in the split dosing. And then we're using a full agonist uh, opioid on top of that, something that's um, hydromorphone, hydromorphone, fentanyl, the, have maybe a little more higher affinity. So, and then the other question is like PCA. I've heard that that might be something that some people are using as well for like, if he's going for a thoracic surgery, maybe this is going to be a really painful wound to recover from. It, is that something, should that be on the table as well? I mean, it's, it, it feels like, you know, for someone with opioid use disorder, giving them IV opioids always feels a little scary. Like, are we gonna, are we gonna stimulate more cravings? So what do you, what do y'all think about that? The PCA? I think you should use the PCA for a patient, an individual who has opioid use disorder, in the exact same situation in which you would use a PCA for an individual who doesn't have an opioid okay. use disorder. You know, the person already has an opioid use disorder. If anything, I think we're putting them at risk by not adequately controlling their pain. Okay. If we aren't controlling their pain, we're putting them at risk of prematurely leaving the hospital supplementing in the hospital with other substances? I think in the hospital I used to work at when I was a hospitalist, there were, PCAs could only be ordered really by the pain service. And so I think it's, it'll depend on kind of what's available at your hospital too, knowing that like with any opioid, when someone has an opioid tolerance is on an MOUD, they're going to need higher doses. And so like they'll probably need higher doses of the PCA too. Um, so you'll probably, you probably have to work in kind of a multidisciplinary team to sort that out a little bit more. Well, JJ, we're gonna we're gonna switch his case up in a little bit here. But what if if we did put JJ on eight milligrams of bup, which was an increase in his dose, eight three times a day instead of eight twice a day, which he was taking at home? Uh, would the expectation be that we would be sending them out on that? Carolyn, you kind of hinted at this, saying like based on how like how well was he controlled at baseline? If he wasn't well controlled, probably makes sense to keep him on that. But if maybe temporarily we think he's going to have some more pain, rather than discharge him with hydromorphone tablets on top of buprenorphine, do you it, what what was the practice or what do you recommend to the audience about that transition of care when they're coming out of the hospital and they've been on they've been on a like uh, short acting opioids and then they've been on a higher dose of bup. Yeah. And again, it, it really comes down to the clinical scenario for your discharge plan and how severe the pain is and what's sort of going on clinically, how quickly do you expect them to sort of improve? So frequently in my practice, I will discharge people on buprenorphine and full opioid agonists. Like for example, JJ, he has an epidural abscess. Uh, let's say he gets surgery, you know, not very comfortable. He's going to have some continued pain, likely in the post-operative setting. So in that scenario, I'm leaving the buprenorphine dose where it is. And then I generally taper the Dilaudid by like one pill a day, you know, and just sort of go from there. So let's say, for example, JJ, he's on his buprenorphine and he was getting, you know, five doses of Dilaudid a day. So hopefully over the next couple of days, he'll continue to improve. And then the great thing is, is since the buprenorphine is there, I don't have to worry about opioid withdrawal as I pull off the Dilaudid, as I pull off the hydromorphone. Yeah. So I would say he's getting it five times a day. Let's try breaking it down to four times a day, four pills a day for the next couple of days, then three pills a day, then two pills a day, then one pill a day, and try and taper somebody off that way. 
And I would, if I were the primary care or the person prescribing his buprenorphine, I would definitely want to be in the loop about this because it just, it just seems like it's going to need very close follow-up just to support, support the patient through that, decide if you need to prescribe any further short-acting pain control. Yeah, it's a tricky, totally. tricky situation. Um, again, yeah. makes me nervous. That's why I'm glad to have you, you all here to answer these questions. Sean. Yeah. And, and yeah, I was going to say like, I, I think there, there, we, I think as clinicians, we have this tendency to overemphasize the harms we might do from doing something from the harms we might do from not doing something. So like discharging a guy who, let's say, had just had spinal surgery that's still using opioids in the hospital without any opioids and him having pain when he leaves the hospital enough so that he goes and starts using could write that could destabilize him from a OUD perspective, probably more than discharging him with a short taper that you're teaming up with his primary care doc to do. And so I, I think it's always, and this will probably come up later in the cases too, it's always worth thinking about that framework too of the harms of not doing something. So I think for a lot of people that have these big surgeries, they do need tapers of short-acting opioids when they leave the hospital and partnering with hopefully some primary care friends and bupe prescribers in the, in the outpatient setting is going to be really helpful in that case. Oh, when I write the scripts, as you said, partnership with the outpatient provider is key. Pick This is the time, right? You pick up the phone, you send them a, a message. Um, generally, I, I'm even if I think the taper is going to be for a prolonged period of time, I'm not necessarily writing a 30-day taper at discharge from the hospital because I think a patient just needs to be clinically reassessed, you know? So I'm really trying to send them out with what I think will be an adequate one week's worth of medications with a PCP follow-up within that time. Or if it takes two weeks, then I will write, you know, for two weeks. Um, but I really want to make sure, one, that they have that appointment set up. And two, you know, as with any medication, right, it needs to be reassessed within a short amount of time. Wonderful. Well, let's let's change the case a little bit. What if JJ had come in, instead of being on buprenorphine for, for maintenance, he was on methadone maintenance, 100 milligrams, which from the wonderful Curbsiders Addiction Medicine episode, I know a normal dose of methadone maintenance is 80 to 120 milligrams, or a typical, I shouldn't say normal, typical dose. Uh, how would this differ, Sean? What what would differ about this? Same scenario. JJ's coming in. He's got a, a thoracic epidural abscess, and so he's got pain. And we also want to keep him on maintenance therapy. How how would you how would you handle this methadone that he's on for maintenance and and the pain control? Yeah, I mean, I honestly think the framework that we talked about for buprenorphine still applies here. I mean, methadone, an amazing medication for treating. Um, for treating opiate use disorder. I, I think it's worth providing the context again, like buprenorphine and methadone reduce mortality by 50%, right? These are the, some of the most amazing medications that we have in medicine at helping people live longer lives. Um, but methadone, just like buprenorphine, the, its effect on cravings can last up to a day or over a day, but its effect on pain is much more short acting. And so same case of I would go to the person and ask, how do you feel about splitting up your dose? Sometimes we find that for people that helps more with pain and think about splitting up their current dose into like TID dosing. That being said, I think a lot of people because the system that we provide methadone in in this country is so rigid, they get very nervous about changing their doses around rightfully. And so I always talk to people before splitting their dose up 
Um, and then same kind of thing. If you think this is, if this is, this guy's an epidural abscess, if he didn't have OUD, if he wasn't on methadone, you would use opioids to treat that pain. You should use opioids to treat this pain and just know you're going to have to use higher doses than typical because they have a high tolerance. Um, I, I don't think of as much of like the delineation between having to use a higher affinity opioid because methadone is not like super high affinity. So I think when people are on methadone, I still reach for oxycodone and things like that. But and even to add to that, which opioid do I select for that short acting? I think it's good to remember that the mu receptor has just a ton of variability from person to person. So some of my patients will be like, no, this is the one. Like morphine works for me every time or oxycodone works for me every time. So go off what they tell you, you know, if they have had positive um and an effective analgesia from that, it's something to use. And also if somebody is not achieving adequate analgesia, you know, on oxycodone or hydromorphone, it's okay to try an opioid rotation and just say, hey, like this just, just seems to not be working for you. Let's just switch it up and we may be able to get more relief. And I, I have found that effective um, in a number of cases. I wanted to go back to the, is there any problems legal like we're not going to discharge them on split dose methadone right but if while they're in the hospital are we allowed to give them 25 or 25 times a day or whatever we need to do to make up 100 it's a little bit of a yeah. weird i don't know yeah. if you can give 33 and a third three times a day or whatever but what how would you split that up and and can we do that legally yeah. So, yeah. So the regulations around methadone in the hospital are pretty much like any other medication in the hospital. You can essentially do whatever you want with it in the hospital. It's very regulated in the outpatient setting in terms of um, it getting prescribed at an opioid treatment program, which is those, again, those kind of, I don't want to call them clinics, but like separate air, separate places where you go to get treated with methadone in the United States that are essentially removed from the healthcare system and were done so on purpose. Um and so in the hospital, you can use methadone however you want it. And so just like methadone is used for pain in, in kind of a split fashion, you can use it for to split to try to help with pain when someone that's on it for OUD by splitting it up. Um, as far as the dose, I think it's very hospital dependent. Methadone comes in liquids and pills. And so it'll depend on what's available at your hospital. Um, but I think like I have definitely split up into weird doses before and given someone like 33 milligrams <laughs> three times a day. Probably the chagrin of a lot of pharmacists, but but <laughs> okay. it somehow worked. Yeah. And I like, Carolyn, I like your approach. You told us with the first... Uh, the first iteration of this, where you, you would ask JJ, what do you want to do? Do you want to keep your dose the same? Do you want to make the pain treatment a completely different thing? Or do you want to try to split it up to see if that helps give you a little extra pain control? And you're going to make full agonist opioids available either way to treat the acute pain part of things. The methadone is going to be continued for the, the cravings. Perioperatively, is methadone any? I don't know that I've ever asked this before. Is is methadone any different? Methadone maintenance perioperatively, do, is that something that the the surgeons or the anesthesiologists don't like to have in the patient's system? I have not come across that. I'll say I think like anesthesia, there's like some that use actually methadone in the operative setting to help reduce post-operative pain. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't think that, I have not heard of any problems with it. I mean, I think it's worth addressing, like there's a lot of stigma in the hospital in general. And to go on a very brief rant too, I think one, one other expert opinion thing that I do is, I think people often get labeled as being like kind of 
seeking medications, right, is, is a term that's often used in the hospital because they have opiate use disorder and they have pain. And maybe they, like Carolyn had said, have identified an opioid that works for them often. And so I think people's pain often gets ignored for that reason. And so my expert opinion and personal practice is I often schedule some opioids around the clock for people at the beginning or when I know kind of what they're going to need for pain so that they're getting assessed at a regular time interval. So I'll schedule something like, say, for instance, oxycodone 10 milligrams every four hours when I expect they're going to need more than that 10 milligrams and have additional PRNs available. So someone has to check on their pain every four hours and then can give them the additional PRNs too. I like it. And and I think the other thing um, that I just wanted to mention, because we talked about acute pain in the hospital with uh, Melissa Weimer, uh, the great Dr. Melissa Weimer, and she was mentioning just like like adjuvant. We, we talked about you know, thermal therapy, ice or heat, uh, there's, there's all sorts of adjuvant medications that we would be prescribing too. So I don't want the audience to think that we're just saying everyone just opioids are all we're doing for this person's pain. Um, that's just like the main focus of this show is like, how can we safely do this and how can we feel comfortable doing this? But we're all still going to treat the pain like we would anyone else's pain, multi multiple modalities. And uh, so I just wanted to mention that. But speaking of other things we're going to address, Carolyn, what else do you like to consider? Like patients coming in the hospital with opioid use disorder and pain, they uh, insomnia, other symptoms like that. Can you speak to that a little bit? There is a ton of things that can go into how we experience pain and hospitals are just really uncomfortable, unpleasant places to be. So I think it's important to ask, like, how are you sleeping? You know, I know particularly for myself, when I do not sleep, I am grumpy and irritable. And uh, if I have an injury, it's worse. So I think about adding a medication if folks are having trouble sleeping, such as, you know, Trazodone or Seroquel, just to help with that, as well as uh, managing underlying anxiety. It's really stressful for a lot of folks being in the hospital, particularly if they have to have a long hospital stay. So I like to check in on this, um, see if they have, you know, an underlying generalized anxiety disorder that may be a orange treatment or trying something as simple as just adding hydroxyzine just to help as well can can go a long way. It's not going to fix anything. It fix everything by any means, but it can be a really helpful. I want to spend some time on a little bit more of a complex case, which is maybe because we I made it a little bit easier on this first one, although I still feel like I learned a ton from from talking through that with you. So thank you. But now let's say that we we had this same patient and this is I think everyone listening probably has this happen all the time if they're working in a hospital where the patient's not on any medication for opioid use disorder and but they're coming in. They, uh, let's just remind, so JJ is 32. He uses 10 bags of IV fentanyl a day. He has only so far received 15 milligrams oxycodone. Um, that was started in the ER and the pain control is just not good. And he's, and he's here with an epidural abscess. He's saying, I, I'm going to leave if, um, if something's not done, um, I'm going to start to go into opioid withdrawal. This, this oxycodone is not touching my pain or my opioid cravings. So how do you see, um, the fact that he has fentanyl in a system, maybe let's talk about that first, Sean, like how does, why does this present a problem if we're going to, our goal is maybe to treat both the opioid cravings and the acute pain. Um, why is this such a complicated problem? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's a complicated problem for a couple of reasons. I, I want to go on a brief rant before I get into the actual question, to be honest, if y'all are okay with that. But, sure. Um, so I, I hate the framing that we always come across where like people say, well, opioid withdrawal is not life-threatening and it's just like a case of the flu, right? It, the minimization of like how severe opioid withdrawal is because truthfully, uh, I mean, I've had the flu. I've not had opioid withdrawal before, but like I've seen people in opioid withdrawal and it is way, way worse than the flu. It's bad enough that people, because their opioid withdrawal is untreated, choose to leave the hospital. When they've come to the hospital, which is a place that generally treats people who use drugs terribly, they leave the hospital despite having a life-threatening infection. And then people who leave the hospital prematurely are more likely to die, right? And so people like Opioid withdrawal is absolutely life-threatening if it leads to people prematurely discharging. So not addressing opioid withdrawal, which this guy, if he's not already in, is impending, is 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 medical is right, it's not the standard of care. It's medical malpractice in my mind. And so back to the question that you asked probably five minutes ago, but why is the fentanyl in this guy's urine an issue? I think one is the drug supply is incredibly um variable right now, incredibly toxic, but it's incredibly potent too. And so like, number one is this, if someone is using fentanyl, particularly if they're using IV fentanyl, they're probably gonna have a very high tolerance for opioids. And so you need to just take that into account coming in right at the beginning. I think the other issue with fentanyl is that if his desire is eventually to get onto buprenorphine, what we know is that people who are regularly using fentanyl, it just is a little bit harder to get them onto buprenorphine. There's a little bit higher of a risk of going into precipitated withdrawal. And so that just comes into my calculations early on when I go meet this guy of how do I get your pain under control, prevent withdrawal, first of all, and then in the long term, if you're interested in it, how do I get you onto the form of, of MOUD, the medication that you want to be on for opioid use disorder too? Carolyn, can you talk about the why is fentanyl such a tricky thing compared to back. Uh, I mean, this is probably before my time heroin was when, when patients were mostly using heroin, it was a six or 12 hour wait. You could, then you could give them buprenorphine and precipitated withdrawal wasn't as much of a problem, but why is it a bigger problem with fentanyl? So what that means is basically fentanyl, even though it's short acting, it sort of stores and folks adipose cells and it's sort of has this protracted excretion back into the plasma. So even though it's short acting when you take, um, uh, when you use it to IV essentially, it still sort of lingers. So if you have heavy, irregular fentanyl use, it's storing in your cells. And again, it's making it hard to determine when is the optimal time to really start somebody on buprenorphine. And in addition, like what Sean said, like the supply is super toxic. It's very variable. It's not just fentanyl. You know, I sometimes like to think of them as high potency synthetic opioids, right? So we know there's a lot of fentanyl analogs that are out there that we don't fully understand what their chemical properties are and what the clinical implications are. I think the last bit of data I saw from drug checking was that about 75% of fentanyl tested really is fentanyl, but then another 25 of it is analogs and, and other high-potency opioids. So that also comes to the picture, again, making buprenorphine inductions more unpredictable. I, I want to bring in uh, Sean's analogy of this like speeding car, uh, because I think we're going to talk about a couple options here, right? Like what we can do. St buprenorphine is involved in at least two of the options. And then I see methadone or just full agonist opioids as the other two options. Uh, but Sean, can you talk a little bit about this, like 
this analogy to set this up. And I think maybe we've mentioned it on the show before, but I, I think it, it always bears repeating. Well, I appreciate that, that you like this analogy, but, uh, uh, so I, the way that I, the way that helped me understand what precipitated withdrawal is, although it's probably not the perfect analogy is like a car speeding down the road. And so for someone that has full opioid agonists on their opioid receptors, and again, that can be any opioid that can be oxycodone prescribed things that can be non-prescribed things, heroin or fentanyl. Um, that's like a car going 120 miles an hour. Buprenorphine is a partial agonist at the opioid receptor, so it's like a car going very comfortable 60 miles an hour. But like we talked about, buprenorphine is higher affinity at the opioid receptor, so that means it grabs that receptor tighter. And so if there are other, other opioids on the receptor, because buprenorphine has a higher affinity, it wants to get on that receptor more, it kicks them off. And so that's like the car that, again, with the full opioid agonist is going 120 miles an hour, you give them buprenorphine, it kicks all of the opioids off the receptor, the car immediately slows to 60 miles an hour, and that feels like you're slamming on the brakes, and that's precipitated withdrawal. And I will say, I have accidentally put people into precipitated withdrawal before from starting buprenorphine. I haven't done it commonly. It, it, although it like happened, it's it's more frequent with people using fentanyl. It's still not like happening every time we start buprenorphine, but it is horrible. Like people feel like complete trash. They can barely move. They feel so terrible. And so we should be trying to avoid it if we can and help people. And we really should be trying to avoid it in patients who also have acute pain. Yeah. Yes. Because <laughs> it's, you will... Ooh, that's uh yeah, that person is not going to appreciate the medical care that they are receiving. So it's it's a it's a period of high risk. You know, I'm really thinking thoughtfully about what is the best way to help this patient. And in addition, I do want to plug too though that even though our supply has changed, MOUD like methadone and bup are still very effective for opioid use disorder. Okay. And there is data out there to suggest that um, it can still be used for treatment. And there were some recent Canadian guidelines that uh, that sort of stated in their expert opinion, they're often recommending methadone doses greater than 100 milligrams for folks with um, with regular fentanyl use. So just because it's out there, uh, treatment is still very effective and we should be using it. Well, so let's talk about this first scenario, which is let's say that the patient, the, like, let's say that maybe the pain is only mild and the patient says, you know what, my pain's mild. I... I had fentanyl about four hours ago before I came to the hospital. Um, I, I, I just want to try to make it and I want to try to get on, um, I want to try to get on buprenorphine. Um, and let's, let's take low dose initiation out of that. We'll talk about that next. So what was the, what, what would be a typical way this person might get on to, uh, if, if they hadn't received any opioids, this person's received opioids in the ER. So we got to wait at least you know, 12 hours or six, six to 12 hours after that. Right. But if, if they had used fentanyl, uh, Carolyn, what would be like a typical waiting period? Um, if we're going to put them on like a two or four milligram dose or, or whatever dose we're going to use, like a bigger dose of, of buprenorphine, not the low dose. Yeah, I, in my practice and I'm practicing in the Northeast, which I think does matter because apply is variable in different parts of the country. I'm generally waiting 24 hours. 
or I'm encouraging people to wait as long as they possibly can to really try before they start the buprenorphine. So I say it could it could be as early as 12. You know, I think it would be great if you could last 24. And if you can last longer than that, that's okay. And I am using higher doses these days. So instead of giving two or four milligrams of buprenorphine, I am probably telling them to take either eight or 12 right away and ramping it up quickly. Interesting, yeah. Because yeah. a lot of the pathways places I've worked, which is just a couple, uh, they have like a two to four milligram first dose for initiation. Then you repeat it every two hours or something like that. And max of 16 milligrams a day. This sounds like you're very quickly going to, you might go up to 24 milligrams in the first day and you might be giving eight milligrams every, every so often. That's, that's different. Um, Sean, you were going to say something. Is, it, is that similar to your practice now, what, what Carolyn's doing, the bigger dose? Wait as long as you can give a bigger dose. Yeah, same, yeah, and I'll plug in for Curbsider's Addiction Med where we did a, an OBOT episode with Christy Soren who does a much better job of explaining the approach, I think, than I will ever do. But yeah, I essentially wait as long as I can. I think, it, I mean, things that I think about too is like if someone's going to be in the hospital for a longer period of time, there are times where I'll just give them some oxycodone for pain for a couple of days to kind of push out withdrawal symptoms and let the fentanyl flush out of their system if if it's not going to prolong their hospitalization and then just hold that for like 12 hours overnight or something. Ah, that's a good idea. Uh, but that's something that I've just started doing. But yeah, I definitely push the doses. I'd give it, like I'm giving at least eight milligrams for the first dose. I think there are times where I'm just giving 16 for the first dose too. And definitely for people that are using fentanyl or again whatever is in the very toxic drug supply at this point and using it iv i think it's pretty rare that they're going to stabilize on a dose that's less than 16 and probably are going to need up to 24 and so i think ramping them up to 24 is 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 the right way to do it the the guidelines for like how we started bup are still kind of based on a lot of data in the pre-fentanyl era i think and so people are having to to kind of use their expert opinion and kind of rapidly change to try to adjust and get people out of withdrawal as soon as possible and get them onto a therapeutic dose so that they can engage in treatment. And so, Yeah. And this is tricky in the hospital, right? Because if, you know, if the patient's in just mild pain and and they're okay with waiting, you can wait. Or if, if they're in no pain and they're okay with waiting, then you can wait the 24 hours, give them some comfort medications um, for nausea and diarrhea and all those anxiety, all those things. Uh, you can give them acetaminophen or NSAIDs, other things for pain. But what if it was more severe pain? Probably that's not, this is not the best option, right? Because the patient needs something now. Um, so do you want to, do you want to talk about like, what are the options if the patient's in like moderate to severe pain? Um, I see there's maybe three, the low dose initiation, the me- methadone, or you just as, or you give them just a full agonist. So Sean, can you talk, maybe you go first. How do you decide between those options? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I'm just talking with, I mean, just having a conversation with the person, probably while they're getting some amount of opioids for pain and to kind of hopefully prevent withdrawal symptoms. Because truthfully, it's really hard to have a conversation when you feel like garbage from pain and withdrawal. And so I think like putting them on short-acting opioids and again, using higher doses than you think the you think someone without opioid tolerance would have is going to be your first step so you can actually have an informed conversation with them. So what would but be then, like an oxycodone, can you like oxycodone 40 milligrams uh, or 30, 20, 30 milligrams? Like what is, usually I start people at five or 10. 
Yeah. So, I mean, I, if someone is telling me, and again, this is getting some history, but if they're telling me that they're using fentanyl IV every day and they're using like a bundle a day, but I admit that I'm probably starting under dosing and then ramping up because you can always give more, you can't give less. And so I'm often offering methadone, first of all, as like, even if it's just like a pain withdrawal standoff, kind of just to punt stuff down the road for a little while, like put them on 30 milligrams of methadone and then adding short acting opioids and starting them on like I'm starting them on standing. So I start a lot of people on like 15 Q4 standing and then add additional PRNs and then I'm reevaluating. Um, and the methadone but, is regardless of whether or not they're saying, yes, I want to be connected with an outpatient uh, methadone program. You're saying 30 of methadone just to get, you know, just to get them feeling reasonably well from the opioid craving standpoint, that's not as much for pain. And then you're going to give pain medicine on top of that. Yeah, I think it's it's like both to kind of help with withdrawal, acknowledging that like 30 milligrams of methadone is not going to make all of their withdrawal go away and not going to make their pain go away. But it's at least like, I feel like it gives you a little bit of a baseline that then you can add the short acting on top of. I think if you're just using short acting, you're just going to have to go usually with higher doses. And truthfully, like I think using higher and higher doses makes a lot of people uncomfortable. So I think combining things can often just make it feel a little easier. But that's also based on patient preference too. I mean, I've definitely seen a lot of patients that like, don't even come near me with methadone. Don't say the word methadone. In that case, I'm not going to give them 30 of yeah. methadone, right? I'm going to give them short acting opioids and do what I can to get control of their symptoms quickly. But So Carolyn, if a patient didn't want to talk about methadone or buprenorphine, they said, I'm here for pain. I don't want either one of those. I'm not going to, I'm not going, I'm not ready for outpatient treatment. I just want to get my infection or whatever treated. Do, do you ever go the route of just giving full agonist opioids like around the clock while they're there, Carolyn? And what, what might that look like uh, for you? I know this is not yet like f standardized everywhere. Yeah, you should do it. Again, you should manage somebody's pain appropriately and just try and engage them and meet them where they're at. And everybody deserves to have their pain treated while they're admitted in the hospital. So again, ideally, it'd be great to have an individual on methadone or buprenorphine because it actually often means that they use less um, uh, and lower doses of the full agonist. But if that's just not what they're interested in, it's totally reasonable to use full agonists. Generally, in my practice, I usually schedule short acting, sort of, again, ramp up pretty quickly, and then adjust and go from there. It's can be challenging to sort of taper those medications, you know, long-term. Um, and occasionally I will say, again, depending on how long someone's there, I may use a long-acting dose of OxyContin at night just because I, I think that short-acting is every three, four hours. And when people sleep, it can be a little bit more challenging during that time. So I will frequently schedule short-acting during the day. I'll say, hold at night if they're sleeping and give them a dose of, you know, long-acting uh, full agonist opioids at the night time to help them sleep. Yeah. And, and I want to say like using short acting opioids and addressing someone's pain and withdrawal is like a way that you, you know, gain people's trust too. Right. And so like, I think not a lot of people have had the conversation of like the true benefits of methadone and buprenorphine too. And if you like get someone stabilized on short acting opioids in the hospital while they're there, say they're getting treated for endocarditis, they're going to be here weeks. Like you can have conversations and like maybe eventually figure out that maybe their goal is to get on MOUD at some point too. And right. so like the door isn't closed just because when they're feeling like trash in the ED, the first time they see you, they say no too. Um, so I think like Again, treating treating pain, treating withdrawal, this is should be our standard of care to get people the treatment that they came to the hospital for. So yeah, and I hadn't considered the the route of like 
getting them on oxycodone or hydromorphone, whatever it is, oral, and just treating them for a couple of days with that. And then if they decide they do want to try buprenorphine, it's a little bit of an easier way to get them over. It's a little more of a predictable, you know, we'll wait this long. You should be in enough withdrawal. We can put you on the buprenorphine, the I guess we're in, it's going to become the old-fashioned way if uh, if the low-dose initiation thing becomes the standard. But, all right, so that's that. So, so, so JJ, uh, in this, uh, to remind the audience, we're talking about scenarios where the, the this patient is not yet on a medication for opioid use disorder, but is coming in with both risk for withdrawal or at least mild withdrawal and, and severe, moderate to severe pain. We, uh, the first iteration we talked about is they had mild pain and we waited a long time and then we put them on bup. But now we're talking about moderate to severe pain. We got to address the pain a little more quickly. What if the patient says they want to do methadone? Um, Sean, what might that look like? Would it still be the same 30 milligrams? And how might, if they're going to be there for a week, what might that look like? And and you're going to try to connect them to a methadone program when they leave. Yeah. it's And so, Another pitch for curbsiders addiction med, probably one of my favorite episodes, but with Dr. Ruth Pody, I hope I pronounced that right. But I she think so, yeah. Slammed the methadone episode out of the park. Like, I, it honestly revved me up. I got more excited about methadone. I didn't think I could be. But, <laughs> uh, um, so, method, just like buprenorphine in the era of fentanyl and the era of this drug supply that we have, we know methadone initiations were, are kind of adapting too. And there's this big, there was actually this really good article by, I think it was by Zoe Weinstein out of BU recently that called for really, we need to do more research on how we initiate methadone because the old way we did it, which was starting people on 30 milligrams up titrating by like 10 milligrams every three to five days or every week is often too slow for people that are using regular fentanyl. And that period when people start methadone is actually the highest risk period often for people. And so in the hospital, someone's in a controlled setting, it's easy to give them 30 of methadone if they're still having, and again, using full full other full agonists to help with the pain and even to help with the withdrawal symptoms because we don't think that the 30 milligrams of methadone is going to cut it, is going to cut it really for everything. And so, and then you kind of ramp up as you go. And so for me, if someone has like, uh, if someone is only using uh, like low levels of intranasal kind of substances, if they're only using pills like oxycodone prescribed things, uh, I'll start at 20 or 30 and kind of hold that there for a couple of days and slowly ramp up. If someone is using a lot of like not if someone's using a lot of the illicit drug supply like fentanyl and the fentanyl analogs and using it IV, I'll ramp up quicker. And so I do 30 on my first dose. I'll give another 10 that evening if they need it. And then I'll go up by 10 a day until until we get to 70 on day like four or so, and then hold it at 70 for a couple of days while using additional short-acting opioids for pain and withdrawal. Right. Because the methadone, really, we're using that for cravings. We're not necessarily, I guess we did, we talked about if someone was on a stable dose of methadone, we might split that up to to try to work for pain control. But it, it seems it like, it seems like a Eat like a safer thing in this case to just keep the methadone as the one chunk that you're given once once a day, maybe an extra 10, and then you're using short-acting pain medicine to supplement that for the pain control. Um, okay, I, I like it. I, I think I'm getting this now. Carolyn, anything to add? I'll say you can do, you can do either or. I, I've kept um, folks split-dose methadone sort of when I'm initiating for pain purposes, you know, okay. still without, again, overlying, underlying, overlying principle that like, you know, we can add another 10 milligrams a day. I'll ask them kind of where they want to add it. And uh, another thing there is too, is if somebody does get, you know, a little bit sleepy later on, you can always hold that 
the evening methadone dose. So yeah. it kind of depends what the patient needs. Okay. Yeah. And, and I want to put a plug in for like, this is something where you need to know your community resources, right? There's, there is a state, I honestly don't remember which one, there's a state in the United States that does not have any opioid treatment programs for methadone. And so if you're in that state, like ramping someone's methadone up really quickly in the hospital is probably not the best thing to do because you're gonna have to figure out how to taper them off before they leave. And so figure out kind of, or try to partner with some of the opioid treatment programs in the area so that you can ramp up a dose in the hospital and then they can go to the opioid treatment program on that stabilized dose, right? If they leave the hospital on 70 or 80 milligrams and are able to continue at the opioid treatment program after, that could be a humongous win towards keeping them on methadone. Yeah. Otherwise, probably if you didn't think the person was going to get, uh, was if the person was not going to get connected to a program, you'd be obligated to do some sort of a taper before they left the hospital. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about uh, with the with the last last few minutes here. This low dose initiation, uh, Sean, you you wrote a paper with some of your colleagues about this. Um, this this low dose initiation of buprenorphine. I know there's been there's I don't think there's any there there's multiple protocols people have tried. Um, any that you would recommend or how would you recommend people think about this? Is this ready for prime time yet? Or is this something that, that, uh, people should hold off on? I mean, I think it's, it's ready. I think it's ready for prime time in certain clinical situations. Like I am in most clinical situations, especially in like the clinic and things like that, I'm still going for kind of whatever we're going to call it, our traditional or old school bup initiation where we're having them stop for a day, wait for withdrawal symptoms, and then starting buprenorphine. Low-dose initiation of buprenorphine, which goes by a lot of names, also like rapid overlap initiation of buprenorphine, the term kind of microdosing was used previously, although I think is not the most accurate term, and so I kind of tend to avoid it. But, but the way that it works is essentially you're taking really small doses of buprenorphine while someone is still on whatever full opioid agonist they're on and very slowly ramping up the dose over the course of days. And so going back to our car analogy, if someone say is on, they're in, this guy is in the hospital now, we've treated his pain, he's gotten through his surgery, his pain is stabilized, he's in a good spot, he's just kind of waiting to have safe placement to continue his six weeks of IV antibiotics for his endocarditis or osteo or something, and he's on oxycodone 15Q4 and has been on that for a couple of days to help his pain and withdrawal. In that case, so his car, right, he's got full opioid agonist on, the, uh, on his receptors. The car is going 120 miles an hour, but we don't want to just stop his opioids because he still has pain from the surgery and, and going through withdrawal for 12 hours and acute pain is just not a reasonable thing for him at this point. And so we start really tiny doses of buprenorphine. On day one, we start like 0.5 milligrams. Day two, we go up to like 0.5 milligrams twice a day. And each day, a little bit of the buprenorphine displaces the full opioid receptor on the agonist. And so that car that was going 120 miles an hour on the oxycodone on day two, when there's also 0.5 milligrams of buprenorphine in the system, is now going 110 miles an hour. And the next day we go up on the bup a little bit more, a little more bup displaces the opioids and the car slows down a little bit until we get them to a therapeutic dose on like day five, six, seven. And then we can stop the opioids because all their receptors in their brain have buprenorphine on it. Uh, and the car had never really had to have an abrupt stop. And so that person never went into withdrawal. I love it. So it's like gradually hitting the brakes on the car. And yeah, uh, yeah it's like, it's, yeah, it's 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 beautiful, and it's I the it potentially the patient just doesn't have to go through any withdrawal symptoms at all. You you avoid this whole risk of 
precipitating withdrawal or the patient just having to feel miserable for 24 hours while you're waiting for everything to get out of their system. Yeah. Uh, and I'll say this is like still relatively in the realm of expert opinion. Like all of the literature on low-dose initiation of buprenorphine is all kind of case reports and case series and retrospective chart reviews and things like that. There are like definitely some principles that you can glean from it. And there's a lot of different protocols that you can use in the hospital. It's going to depend on what buprenorphine formulation you have in the pharmacy because you have to get to those doses that are below the strength of the lowest strip or tab, which is two milligrams. And so some hospitals, you'll have to use IV buprenorphine. Some you can use the buccal or buccal. I never know how to pronounce that word formulation <laughs> of buprenorphine. Some hospitals will let you split up the films, but what you really need to do is continue the full agonist throughout the entire time that you're doing this transition. Because if you start if you start tapering their full agonist or stop their full agonist, they're going to go into withdrawal. And then you're not going to know if it's from the buprenorphine or full of, from the full agonist. And so continue the full agonist, slowly increase the bup dose. And then when you get to therapeutic, like 16 milligrams, you can stop the full agonist. Yeah. And I've, I've even seen some patients, I know there's some protocols out there, maybe the patient's even on hydromorphone PCA, and then you start doing the buccal buprenorphine, gradually build, building up their dose. And uh, so just whatever, whatever they need for their acute pain control, they're, they're, they're using that. I guess in the outpatient scenario with this, they might still be whatever fentanyl they're illicitly using. They would keep using that, and, but as you ramped up the, the buprenorphine. Carolyn, for the, in the hospital, any anything to add to this this other final scenario that we're talking about with this low dose initiation? I think exactly what you said. Make sure you're scheduling the full agonist. You know, I I definitely uh, have seen folks run into some issues if it's PRN because it, it's really important to to keep that medication on and keep those receptors sort of saturated with their baseline opioids. I also think that like uh, sometimes it definitely decreases your risk of having any precipitated withdrawal. Occasionally, um, some patients may experience a little bit of minor discomfort. So I do counsel patients on that at the start, just so they're prepared. Like we think that this is really going to help make this transition much more smooth for you in terms of getting onto buprenorphine. And if at any point you're having discomfort, please like let us know. We want to make adjustments. We may to need to adjust the full agonist or give comfort medications, but we just want to keep an open line of communication so we can help treat and manage symptoms as they go through that process. If patients do, you know, we we talked about the the hard way to get on buprenorphine is like you wait a really long time and then you give a you give a dose like a nowadays a bigger dose, eight milligrams, twelve milligrams of whatever of buprenorphine after that long wait. If they do, if we do precipitate withdrawal, wh- how are you handling that? And should we just give them back full agonist opioids to try to pull them out of withdrawal? Would that even work? I, I mean, what's what's the approach there? Yeah. Precipitated withdrawal is still this like uh, such, it it always brings up so much anxiety in me and I'm not even the one experiencing it. But uh, so I think it depends on the context. I mean, my my thoughts are it depends on the context of the precipitated withdrawal. So if you're doing a traditional initiation where you just gave someone whatever, two, four, eight milligrams of buprenorphine, I think the, the literature is mostly case reports on how to treat this, but most of the literature suggests you give more buprenorphine. And 
uh, and and you give kind of all the other medications you can for comfort. So you're giving like clonidine, which we know has data that it helps with opioid withdrawal. You're giving NSAIDs, you're giving loperamide to help with diarrhea, you're giving everything you can to help them feel better. And that includes benzodiazepines, right? Precipitated withdrawal is horrible. People have horrible anxiety and feel terrible during it. It's okay to give benzodiazepines, especially in the hospital. There is a little bit of like case reports on like ketamine and precipitated withdrawal. That'll depend on your comfort level and your hospital's regulations hmm. on who can use ketamine, to be honest. Um, I'll wait on that one. That's okay. <laughs> okay. Um, if you're doing a low dose though, and someone start, I've never had someone like truly precipitate during a low dose. I don't know if, if you have Carolyn, but I've had people that have like mild opioid withdrawal symptoms during it. And in that case, um, maybe slowing down the low dose initiation a little bit, like slowing down how quickly I ramp up the dose, taking a pause at that dose or using additional comfort meds and kind of, I, I think it can't be said enough, like this should be patient centered. And so talking them, talking with them through the process and kind of what makes them comfortable about going and what do they think a good next step is too. But I think I have had a scenario too where it was, I, where I thought it was truly mild precipitated withdrawal and I just gave an extra dose of a short acting opioid and they did pretty well. Okay. Well, I mean, we've talked a lot. I think this will probably be covered on future episodes again as we as we have more information to update this. And uh, people should definitely check out all the Curbsiders Addiction Medicine episodes with Carolyn and Sean and friends. Let me ask uh, Carolyn and Sean, did you each have one or two take-home points you wanted to give? Carolyn, we'll start with you. I think all my take-home points are Sean's rants. <laughs> I don't know if we can just put those in the notes. So I'm trying to remember what his first one was. Uh, I think the one most recently is we must absolutely treat opioid withdrawal. It is a medical emergency to treat opioid withdrawal. We must do it. We have many tools we can use methadone, buprenorphine, full opioid agonist, whatever you choose, like we have to treat it and we have to treat it aggressively. And in addition, if you're on MOUD, you can still treat pain with full agonists, you know, keep them on their bup, keep them on their methadone, and then just add the full agonist on top uh, to help patients be successful in both their pain management and their OUD. And Sean? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't know if I could say it. I think you you said my rants better than I did, Karen. But <laughs> Um, yeah, I think I think the biggest take home for me is, yeah, trust your patients, right? If they're saying they're in pain, if they're saying they're in opioid withdrawal, they're probably in pain and they're probably in opioid withdrawal and treat it like don't overemphasize the risk of accidentally giving someone opioids to the risk of not treating someone's pain and withdrawal. And then do not stop their medications for opiate use disorder. Like there's almost unless, there's almost no circumstances where you should stop someone's buprenorphine and methadone when they're coming in for pain or coming in for withdrawal or something like that. So, and I have one more to one more to add. Don't use the term drug seeking. Yeah, I yeah. that a lot. We can all, I think we can all do better. We can avoid that term and uh, it's stigmatizing and really is not accurate and not helpful. All right, thank you both. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. You can get show notes at thecurbsiders.com. You can also get transcripts and sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, twice each month, you'll get The Curbsiders Digest, which recaps the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. And we're committed to high-value practice-changing knowledge, so we want your feedback. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. You can also email us at ask curbsiders at gmail.com 
A reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. I wanted to give a special thanks to Podpaste, who helps to produce and edit the show. Elizabeth Proto runs our social media. Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. And with all that, without Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams, until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Wada. Thank you and good night.